1: You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 233, and today we are talking about books being released on November 5th, 2019, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com.
2: Hello! So, hey! Hi, it's like deja vu. You know, love is lovelier the second time around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we had some technical
1: difficulties. Uh, and unfortunately, I went out of town. And so we weren't able to solve them immediately.
2: But now here we are. Yeah. So we've already talked about these books once. So this should be like the shinier, tighter version of our book talks. Yeah, maybe. <laughs>
1: yeah piece of cake. I, I probably won't set anything on fire this time. Um, you know, you, you won't start screaming about bees, like all the other stuff will be cut out. So
2: <laughs> it's fine. Everyone will just have to wonder what happened.
1: <laughs> Can I tell you about, um, the like most banana pants thing that happened to me while I was in Boston
2: this week? Please. You know, I love a story.
1: So I, I went to Boston to do an author event and before the event, I went to hang out with Pierce Alquist who works for Book Riot. She's awesome mm-hmm. and does our um, books and translations. She knows everything about them. And I was getting out of the cab. And this woman was like, Liberty Hardy? Ooh. And I was looking at her and at first I was like, that's not Pierce. I've hung out with Pierce. Pierce doesn't look like, why, why is Pierce saying my whole name? Like, and, and then I realized like it was, it definitely was not Pierce. And then it was this very nice lady named Annie who lo- loves the show. And I was like, oh yeah, no, sorry. There's no show today yet. Um, but, <laughs> but you get me instead. Yeah. It was so weird. It was like, there I am on the street in Boston and being recognized.
0: So that was cool. That's amazing. Right? So then
1: I went inside and hung out with Pierce. And then after we were leaving, we were in Trident Booksellers on Newbury Street, Boston, which is a great bookstore. We were leaving Trident and I heard Liberty Hardy. And I was like, okay, what is going on? And it was Alex George. That was a very (laughs) bad imitation of his accent, by the way. I'm very sorry, Alex. Alex George, the author, who is so awesome. Like, my blurb is on the the cover of his paperback for Setting Free the Kites. We've talked on the internet for years and years and years and years. We've never met in person. But not only that, but he was in town. He owns a bookstore in Columbia, Missouri. Mm -hmm. But he was in town dropping his son off at Berkeley College. Just randomly in town. And there we were on the (laughs) same street. Like, two, two in, like, two hours. (laughs) It, it freaked me out. That would
2: freak me out, too, like, in a great way.
1: Yeah. I actually, when I turned around and saw it was him, I said a bad word. That was, like, the first thing that I said to him. But I was so shocked. And then I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, like, about the cursing. But, like, this is unreal.
2: <laughs> it was
1: amazing. That is. So that was super cool. That's so
2: cool. Yeah, like, for... Yeah as long as Book Riot's been a thing, but really just for the last couple of years as it's gotten bigger, I've had this feeling of like, I wear my Book Riot hoodie a lot when I'm traveling because it's super comfortable. But every now and then I'm like, what if someone like I don't even think about somebody recognizing me, I'm not that visible on the site anymore. But like, the thing that I want in life is to like sit next to someone on the plane who's like, oh my gosh, Book Riot, I love Book Riot. And then I can casually be like, yeah, me too. (laughs) 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 like just have that moment but how cool and and you got to hang out with erin morgenstern yes
1: she's so lovely i'm going to talk about her book in a moment here spoilers but when you were talking about how you've always wanted to like sit next to somebody i was thinking like and then you could say take it sleazy just (laughs) like just like michael in the good place (laughs) which is coming to an end and i don't know that i can handle it
2: (laughs) i know i'm not ready i'm glad that they're ending it like on a, yeah. you know, it seems like this is a good pace. They had a plan. The show is not going to get like dragged along for longer than it should go. But I love it so much. I may just have to start watching it all over again.
1: I, I did that very thing uh, in the middle of the night a few days ago. I've oh, really? Almost all of it. Yeah,
2: it mm. still holds up. It's only three years old. It still holds. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> well, there it's a, it has a lot of surprises. So if it holds up, even though you know what's coming, that really says something. Yeah.
1: It's very smart, and it squeezes your heart.
2: It does. Well, let's get into these books, Miss Liberty.
1: Yes, before we do that, I'm going to tell you about our first sponsor.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love.
1: Okay, so my first book, as I just spoiled, is The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern, which is probably the most anticipated book of the year. I mean, everybody's been waiting since she, basically, like, once she finished The Night Circus, it came out, and that, next week, everyone's like, when's your next book coming out? Um, and it has been eight years, but, I mean, people are just crazy about The Night Circus. They just, they love it so much. It's so much fun. Um, you know, like... There's tattoos and and fan art, and people dressed up in costume to go to her events, and uh, there was a woman who had a night circus wedding. I mean, people are just so bananas about the night circus. And so everyone was super excited uh, for her new book, and it is lots of fun. It is, as I said, The Starless Sea. It is about a young man named Zachary. He is a graduate student in Vermont. And one day he's in the library and he's kind of like, he likes to poke around at the books that not everyone takes out. Like the ones that you can see obviously haven't been checked out in a very long time. And so he pulls out this book and opens it and starts reading it and realizes that the story that he's reading is about something that happened to him when he was a child. Like exactly. And no one else was around when this happened to him. So he's kind of freaked out. And so I'm going to tell you what it was. Because uh she mentioned it last night at the event. She told everybody, so it's, I don't think it's a spoiler. But, like, when he was young, he was walking down this alley. And he saw this door painted on the wall. And it looked so real, he thought he could open it. And when he, when he went up to it, it looked like he could open it. And then he decided, for some reason, not to open it. And so, now he's an adult. He reads this book. And this chapter is about this little boy going down the alley, not opening this door. And it's freaking him out. So he takes the book out, goes home. First he sits in his closet because he's kind of really freaked out. Uh, but then he decides to investigate, like, where did this book come from? It doesn't have a barcode. Like, she was like, just take it and, you know, I trust you and whatever. Um, but they find out, like, who donated the collection and, like, what the other books are in the collection. And he starts going going through those. And he finds all these symbols. There's, there's a bee, a key, and a sword. And kind of, as he investigates, finds out, like, there's some sort of secret society in New York City that throws this costume party. And he's going to go to that and try and find out, you know, what his role is in the Starless Sea and, like, how he became a part of this story and what the truth is. And, like, in between, like, his parts, we get these stories about pirates and cats and this underground library where there are keepers and acolytes. And it's so fantastic and just sort of, like, immersive, like she does with the Night Circus. Um, Because she was saying that she wanted to know what it would be like if Alice didn't follow the White Rabbit down the hole. Like, what if Alice saw the White Rabbit but Mm. she didn't follow him down the hole? Like, who would she be as an adult? And so that's kind of where the idea for for Zachary came from. Um, It's a little Golden Compass. It's a little bit Alice in Wonderland. It's a little bit World of Warcraft. Video games do play a little bit into it. Um, and it's also, it's darker. You know, she her first book, The Night Circus, uh, was written for adults, but it did, did get the um, Alex Award from the ALA, which is, like, you know, also a bit, like, for teens. And this one is even darker. She was saying, like, you know, we talked about how lots of YA fantasy by women is automatically categorized as, or not YA fantasy, but a lot of adult fantasy by women is automatically categorized as YA. It's it's mm-hmm. like an annoying thing that happens. And she said, you know, she wanted something like age appropriate for herself, like something that she would want to read at her age. Not that it, it's not available to everybody and not that people can't read YA at her age, but she, you know, she wanted it aimed more at her age. So it is The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern, and it is out now.
2: Definitely the book that everyone has been waiting for. The imagery is so, so lovely. I'm going to take a little bit of a hard right turn into a more difficult subject matter. Um the book came out September 24th. I'm like all over the time frame map today and it's kind of weird since this is one of the biggest book release weeks of the year but um not, like I just was have been reading and trying to catch up on the fall and get ahead and I'm only on the show once a month so we're a little bit all over the place. But the last time I was on the show, I was just about to start reading this. And I, it's an important book and I want to follow up on it. So my first pick this week is Know My Name, a memoir by Chanel Miller. Um as you may know, Chanel Miller was uh, the victim of sexual assault by Brock Turner at Stanford several years ago. That was the very famous Stanford um, assault case, which went on forever and was very grisly. And then he was found guilty, but only sentenced to six months and it was only in county jail. And afterwards, there was a huge outcry. Um, she allowed her victim impact statement to be posted on BuzzFeed. It went viral um, to the tune of like 11 million people read it within four days. It led to um, changes in the law in California where she and Brock Turner lived. It led to the community voting to recall the judge uh, who presided over the case. And all along the way, Chanel Miller had been kept anonymous. She um, was referred to as Emily Doe throughout the process. And that's Something that law enforcement does to protect the identity of sexual assault survivors and, you know, to give them some measure of privacy going through a really difficult thing. Um, she writes about the experience. The book opens with her writing about what happened to her. Um, so, trigger warnings for all of the related things for rape and sexual assault. Um, she writes about it realizing what had happened to her and then the process of trying to recover from the trauma at the same time that she's having to relive it constantly to talk to law enforcement officers and then to talk to lawyers and then to prepare for the case, but then to spend all that time waiting that you spend waiting for cases to go to court uh, and then for verdicts to be issued and then for sentencing to occur and how difficult it was to not only be just living in that reality, but also keeping it a secret. Um, She was going to work and none of her coworkers knew that she was the victim in the case. Um, very few of her friends knew that she was the victim in that case. And of course, it was all over the news. So people would be talking about it to her or talking about it around her. And they just had no idea. When the sentence came down and was so light, she was incensed um, and enraged, and you can feel that throughout the book that very righteous, valid anger and decided to use her voice and put her name to her story, um, not just to stand up for herself, but in hopes of changing the conversation that we have about rape and sexual assault and empowering other victims also to come forward and to tell their stories and knowing that um, that sharing of stories and that destigmatizing of being a victim is a critical part of it, but she also writes throughout about all of the ways that her character was called into question. Um, All of the subtle ways that she is the victim was blamed, all of the systemic things that existed to try to protect this wealthy, young white man who had a promising future um, and to try to make her the bad guy in the situation. Um, and she really is taking a very hard and critical look at rape culture and writing about not just her experience, but placing context around it. It's a difficult read, but it's also really, it's just really incredible. And it's beautifully written. She's a very talented writer. Her mother is also a writer. And it has this sense to it of like, I would, I would want to read Chanel Miller reflecting on whatever had happened in her life. It's absolutely horrible that this is the story that she has to tell. It makes me look forward to whatever her next work will be as she continues both as An advocate for sexual assault survivors, um, but also just as a writer who's telling stories from her life. This is an important book. um, And I think it needs to be incredibly widely read. If I got to pick a book that would be one of those like every student on a campus reads the same book, it would be this book on all the campuses forever um, to really start to shift the conversation about um, what happens in society that sets it up and makes it possible for these kinds of assaults to not just happen, but then to be protected all of the things that exist that discourage victims from coming forward, from pressing charges, from trying to um, get some sort of restitution for what's been done to them. And she shines a light on all of that by just looking very clearly at her own experience and describing it. Again, a really tough read if you have triggers around rape and sexual assault. Um, This is one to tread very carefully into if you go into this territory, um, but a really powerful and important book. And um, I think it would be a disservice not to mention it on a show where we're talking about books that we recommend and think that people um would find value in. So that's Know My Name, a memoir by Chanel Miller.
1: Okay, and I'm going to roll into another book, uh, another memoir about the author's experience. Uh, it is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, another uh, extremely sought-after galley turned into awesome book out today. Um, she is the author of Her Body and Other Parties, which is the amazing book of short stories. Um, and this is a memoir about a relationship that she had, uh, trigger warnings for a discussion of um, physical abuse and gaslighting. Uh, it's about... A relationship that she had with a woman she met when she lived in Iowa City. Um, and using, like, art and things from fiction and science and so many other places, she kind of addresses physical abuse among queer couples and the lack of uh, mentions of it throughout history. And so she talks about meeting this woman. She's she's an unnamed woman in, in this book. And uh, Carmen was going to school, I believe, out there. And this she meets this woman at a party and she's kind of like her dream girl like she's she seems very unattainable um and but she's just like she's totally smitten as soon as she meets her and you know they hit it off and then later on the woman calls her and asks her for a ride to go pick up her girlfriend at the airport and she's like oh she has a girlfriend but you know she does it anyway and then later her friend carmen's friend calls her and says you know this woman is into you and she's like well she has a girlfriend and she's like oh you know she's she has an open relationship and you should hang out and so they start hanging out and it turns into like a, a relationship and there's chemistry between them and at first the the woman is very flattering to her she's a lot of fun they do a lot of stuff together but then like very slowly her mask starts starts to slip and she becomes passive aggressive and controlling and verbally abusive um you know like just like picking at you know her weaknesses and then she becomes physically abusive and so this book is about how, you know, as someone who is queer, who is a woman, who is a person of color, already doesn't see themselves represented very often, you know, out in art and and books and everything. And now, you know, like, how do you learn from these experiences or how do you learn about these experiences if you don't see yourself represented? Um, Carmen, Carmen Maria Machado is so smart, so smart, it hurts my brain. And this is just such an incredible incredible memoir. It's almost, it's almost impossible to, to describe it or tell you exactly what is going on in it because there's so many different things happening. But all I can say is that it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. So it is called In the Dream House and it is by Carmen Maria Machado. Whew. Yeah, now I'm gonna tell you about
0: our- Hey, it's
2: Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news, All right. Well, we're going to keep things on the serious tip here for a little while longer. Um, My next pick is For the Love of Men, A New Vision for Mindful Masculinity by Liz Plank. Uh, She is a journalist, a writer. She has a degree in gender studies, and she's written about gender issues and feminism for all kinds of publications. I think Vox was one of the most recent ones, but she's been all over the place. And I have followed Liz's work for quite a long time. Um, this book is about essentially the idea that deconstructing gender roles is not just good for women and non-binary people and other people who are oppressed by patriarchy and masculinity. It is also good for men, that, um, that men are oppressed by patriarchy and masculinity, and that one of the critical things that we have to do to make life better for everyone is change our concepts of masculinity. She argues using a lot of extensive research that masculinity is more tightly defined, more narrowly defined and more policed than any of the other modes of gender expression and that men suffer a lot for this and that the suffering that they experience is one of the causes or perhaps even the primary cause of then the ways that men treat women that are harmful. And that result in oppression of women as well and of non-binary folks and other people who are not traditionally gender conforming. This is an important book. Um, There are a lot of wonderful books about gender and about feminism that I believe should be read by everyone. Um, A lot of the books that have come out over the last few years, um, especially She Said by Rebecca Traister, that have looked at women's anger, that have looked at the Me Too movement, that have sort of looked at um, the functions of feminism in very contemporary movements should be read by men. But these books tend to be read by women. Um, And that's wonderful. Women need to be educated about feminism. Um, But for anything, to change, the men have to get on board too. And one of the pieces of that is that the books need to feel accessible and relatable to male readers, but I think also need to feel like they're not attacking or threatening them. And the fact that just writing about feminism is threatening to many male readers is one of the things that Liz Plank gets back to, that masculinity is fragile. And that's not necessarily men's fault. Masculinity is a construct. Um, So she's talking about how do we explode this construct? How do we change and broaden the idea of what it is to be a man? Uh, The book is interspersed, tons of research, as I said, but interspersed with interviews and stories from men from all kinds of walks of life. It takes a really lovely intersectional approach with stories from um, gay men, stories from trans men, stories from men of color who are all talking about their experiences of masculinity. And uh, often they haven't even thought about where these lessons about what it means to be a man came from. It just feels like things they've always known that have sort of lingered in the back of their mind and controlled. Controlled their behavior or made them feel like they had to conform. And that that bleeds into, of course, their interactions with everyone else in the world. Um, this notion that changing masculinity is part of um, reaching gender equality or really getting past the notion that gender is a thing that matters um, is Uh, very forward thinking, and I think really important. And I want to see it reach the mainstream. I think um, the way that Liz Plank writes about it has the potential and the power to do that. And I hope that this book will be well and widely read by people of all all genders. There's a lot of really powerful information here. Um, I've been mentioning it to a lot of friends recently, and uh, several people who are parenting boys have mentioned that they find it, they find these ideas to be especially important. So that's maybe something to consider if you are a parent of boys, if you're a teacher who works with boys with young men, and is thinking about like, what are we going to do so that the next generations um, of women and of non-binary folks don't have to suffer at the hands of men and of these tightly defined ideas of masculinity so much. This is a great, great pick. Um, so that is For the Love of Men. It's a new vision for mindful masculinity by Liz Plank. It came out September 10th.
1: Okay. My next pick is heavy, mm. but awesome. It is The Revisioners by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. It's an incredible new novel. Her first novel was A Kind of Freedom, which I loved and talked about so much and tell everybody to read. It was a, na- a finalist for the National Book Award, and it's a- an amazing generational novel about a family in New Orleans. And this is another amazing generational novel that spans an even wider amount of time. Uh, it starts with uh, Josephine when she is a young slave in the mid-1800s, um, and she is watching her mother, who is a revisioner, which is a person who has powers. She's kind of a healer. And Josephine herself comes into these powers. And then we see her in 1925. She is older. She has children. She is a landowner. uh, And she has a neighbor, a white woman, who is friendly. They sort of strike up an uneasy friendship. And Josephine likes her, but also... Along with this friendship comes trouble because this woman is also friends with people who are in the KKK. So, you know, so that is, that's a terrible thing that's going on. And so Ava is a member of Josephine's family. Uh, many years later, Josephine would be her great grandmother. Um, and she has lost her job and she needs a place to stay. So she takes her young son, King, and moves in with her grandmother who is white. Ava is biracial. And she moves in with her white grandmother, and she, who also is suffering from dementia so she has to take care of her um and it, and it's it's very hard and this is king's first exposure to his grandmother and or his great grandmother and so that is a very uneasy kind of uh dynamic that is going on in that household it's kind of like it's a it's a look at racism and you know society and how society has worked to keep you know african american folks down <laughs> forever and also about, like, white allies who are unintentionally a problem. Uh, and when, like, when they're very, you know, they have good intentions, but um, they bring a lot of trouble to, to the people they, they think that they are helping. And also, like, about how family history can resonate down through generations. You know, um, and it's just, it's so wonderful. She is such an incredible writer. And um, there's an amazing New York Times review that came out, I think, yesterday about this book, Uh, and and I don't think I've, I've, you know, read one that was like, oh, I just want to read this so much. I was like, oh, yeah, I already read it. Um, It's just so good. It's The Revisioners, and it is by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton.
2: Gonna have to get to that.
1: Yes. And A Kind of Freedom.
2: Yes. Okay, my next pick this week is a funny one. It came out October 15th. It's called Dear Girls, Intimate Tales, Untold Secrets, and Advice for Living Your Best Life by Ali Wong. Uh, If you have Netflix, you have probably watched Ali Wong's comedy specials, um, Baby Cobra and mm, Hard Knock Wife, I believe is the other one. She's hilarious. And this is written as a memoir in letters to her young daughters about – Like all kinds of things in life that most mothers are not telling their daughters about. It's a really, I think, pitch perfect mix of Ali Wong's like very raunchy – humor with also very earnest, sweet stories from her life and lessons that she wants her girls to have as they grow up in the world. Um, And it's hard to do that mix well, but she moves between those two modes just kind of seamlessly and blends them very well, has a great sense of humor about herself. She tells stories about things she did in her youth, um, tells really sweet stories about how she met her husband and what their relationship was like as they were falling in love and getting together and then what it's been like becoming a mother and having a career And doing the kind of work that she does um, with sort of multiple things working against her as being a woman in comedy and also being an Asian American person uh, in comedy, what that's been like, uh, but also that she does not want those particular experiences to define her work um, or to be the only defining features of her work. Um, She's raunchy in a way that women aren't often allowed to be raunchy in public. And it's really hilarious. There are so many stories and jokes about bodily functions though like um, when we recorded this the first time around i was saying that i would have to warn liberty off of it because she's so squicked out by bodily function things but it turns out that you read it because you love her um so much i do
1: (laughs) but i i don't like i think she's wonderful and i love watching her act and and i enjoy watching her but at the same time I'm like no no,
2: no yeah no. so here is your warning that if you are also <laughs> squicked out by bodily functions there's a lot of that in this book um I listened to it on audio and it was I think the perfect way to do this cuz Ali Wong has this very unique voice you get to hear her tell the jokes um it was I was just driving around like cracking up listening to her um and it is really sweet uh there's also an afterword that's written by her husband and he I think it was a a really thoughtful way to end the book, and to come back around to the notion that she's not just writing a memoir; she is uh, intentionally telling these stories to her daughters and talking to them and to audiences of other young women about life. And so he weighs in about their relationship, about um, giving up his own career so that he could be supportive of hers, to show up as the kind of husband and partner and father that. Was important to their family and how what that has been for him, uh, but also about sort of how he negotiate how he and Ali have negotiated that he's part of her material, and then also how the daughters are part of her material and how they deal with those boundaries. And a really interesting and I think healthy and very open way. It was nice to get to hear um, him have a little bit of voice after she tells so many of their stories, but also uses him as sort of a, a set piece in her work. It was lovely, and he uh, delivers that in his own voice as well well on the audiobook so if you like Ali Wong definitely get yourself to Dear Girls if you are not sure who Ali Wong is I think this is also a great introduction uh, because if the book turns out to be like too raunchy for you the comedy specials are definitely over the line if you like this you should dive right into the comedy specials so that's Dear Girls by Ali Wong (laughs) like
1: I wanted to recommend it but at the same time I was so (laughs) I just couldn't I couldn't do it I
2: couldn't put myself
1: through that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but she's so funny,
2: just so funny. I mean, it's easy, it's easy to talk about because we can't really repeat any of the things that she says yeah. on air here. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. So
1: my last pick today is another book that everyone has been waiting for, for forever. We've got a lot of books that were like highly anticipated, like next books, you know, now and coming out. You know, new Erin Morgenstern, new Susanna Kihlman, new Emily St. John Mandel, new Susanna Clark. Lots of Sue's coming. Um, but my last pick is The Great Pretender, The Undercover Mission That Changed Our Understanding of Madness by Susanna Cahalan. And she's awesome. She wrote Brain on Fire. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that book because it kind of plays into this. Uh, Brain on Fire was her story about uh, when she contracted an illness. Um, she was, like, 24. She was working. She had a boyfriend. And she started acting a little differently. And then she started acting a little aggressively. And as the days went on, she became paranoid. She thought people were watching her through her windows. She was prone to rage. And it got to the point where she couldn't function, and they brought her to the hospital. And so her parents were like, this is not, you know, how she normally is. There must be something wrong. And they ran these tests, and they couldn't find anything. And meanwhile, she was just, you know, becoming more and more violent and, like, tied down to the bed and kept sedated. And, you know, after, like, a month, they they said... You need to put her in a psychiatric ward because she obviously has something wrong where she's, you know, got, um, you know, it's maybe it's bipolar disorder. It's very extreme or, you know, like they're, they're giving her all these things that it could be. Um, and because, you know, she'll tell you in the book because of her race, her social status, her age and her generous insurance coverage, her parents said, you know, run some more tests. And they did. And they actually found something that time around. And she actually had something called autoimmune encephalitis, which is a, a disease in the brain. And as it progresses, you know, it makes people more violent. They can't function. Then they, they lose, like, their motor skills. And so throughout history, people have probably had this disease, but they didn't know what it was. And so they were probably put in psychiatric wards. And so she was, t- like, in this book, at the beginning, she's talking about how after she was diagnosed, she was treated she recovered, she started going, um, she was on a Today show, she started doing all these lectures telling people about her her experience, and people were writing to her saying, I diagnosed my sister, I diagnosed my husband, like, it's, it, you know, thank you for sharing your experience, we wouldn't have known, and so she would go and she would talk in front of doctors, and she would talk about how, you know, she tried to dress as normal-looking as she could for when she spoke in front of doctors, just to show them, like, look, phew, like, look how close I came, you know, like, but look at me, I'm so normal. And then she gets this letter from a man who says that his son has had trouble with psychiatric illness for many, many, many years. And the the father was watching this video of one of her talks. And she says how she was glad that it was something that was physical, not psychological, that was wrong with her. And he said, you know, isn't your brain a part of your body? Isn't that something physical? Like, how could you think, you know, an illness in your brain is not physical? And she starts to think about this. And she started to wonder, like, who decides, you know, and how do they decide um, what what mental illnesses people have? Like, the symptoms vary so widely. Like, how do they come to these decisions? And the answer, basically, is, like, they don't. There's no, like, known, you know, uh, quantifiable, you know, symptoms of anything. And so she goes back. She talks about, like, Nellie Bly, the reporter um, in the 1800s. She pretended to be ill to get into Blackwell's Island. Like she um, practiced in front of the mirror until she thought she looked like somebody who would belong in an, in an asylum, as they were called then, and and actually got herself committed to one as a, as like a a project for her her newspaper. But then she couldn't get out. Like once she got there, she was like, "Hey, so yeah, I'm a journalist, and this is my undercover, um, my undercover story. I wanted to see what it was like in here. Yeah, it's awful. I'd like to go now." And they were like, "Yeah, whatever." And she ended up there for ten days, and she couldn't talk her way out. And so her publisher had to go and and get her out. And so it was kind of like everyone knows how to diagnose someone who is mentally ill, but when the people appear not to have any of these symptoms, they don't they don't get back out. Um and so doctors everywhere at that time were just putting everyone in asylums. It was basically like the Salem which is it was like a money grab. Lots of family members were Committing, um, members of their family so that they could take their inheritance, so that they could take their homes. Um, men were committing their wives. Uh, Charles Dickens, who very famously came out against asylums himself, tried to have his wife committed so that he could be with this much younger woman that he was seeing. Um, you know, and it was like a, a huge problem. And so they had to make these new laws because doctors were easily bought. Like you'd give them a bunch of money and they'd be like, yes, your mother needs to go into this home, even though she hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, so they stopped being trusted after a while. And then, uh, after World War II, uh these soldiers were coming back from the war, again, with with um, very serious issues, you know, like, you know, of course, like PTSD, which they didn't really know much about then. Um, and doctors and psychiatrists all of a sudden had all this power again. They were giving people lobotomies. You know, it was very awful. Once again, they were like, how do psychiatrists have this much power? Like, who put them in charge? And so, in 1970, a Stanford psychologist by the name of David Rosenhan did this experiment, He, himself, and then seven other people went to different psychiatric hospitals and all followed the same script. They said, you know, that they were hearing voices. They said that they were all saying, like, they all had the same things that they were hearing them say. And they were all committed to these psychiatric hospitals. And then as soon as they were committed, they went back to just being themselves. And it took them from, like, seven or eight days to 67 days to get out of the hospital once they were committed. And so it, you know, he, he really shook up, um, psychology because people were like, how is this possible? Like you, once you get in there, how do you get out? Um, and so Susanna Callan was very interested in this story and she also was reading about it and noticed some things that she had questions about and actually interviewed the doctor. I'm not going to tell you like what happened there because that's kind of like a spoiler, but it's, you know, it's like this incredible study that a lot of stuff has been based on since then. And maybe not all the data is correct. Uh, it's like, it's a very well-researched sort of medical mystery. It really makes you think about, you know, like how we identify psychiatric illnesses. Not me. I'm not allowed to do that. But like people who are professionals <laughs> um, and, and it's so interesting. It's just so, so fascinating. So that is The Great Pretender by Susanna Cahalan.
2: That's one that I have been so eager to read because that Rosenhan study is one of the first things that I learned about in my first abnormal psych class in college. And then it came up again in graduate school. And I learned about it in the context of um, how powerful expectations are that like these people got admitted by kind of all they were saying was that they heard a voice telling them empty hollow thud and yep. um they all got admitted and then they all continued behaving normally but once you're admitted and once the doctors had the belief and the expectation that these people had mental illnesses s- starting to try to tell them like no actually I'm healthy I'm normal I can leave like gets interpreted through the lens of like, well, you're a diagnosed person with a mental illness. Of course, you would say that and you're trying to leave, but we know better than that. Um, so I'm really looking forward to learning more and to finding out more context for that because it's one of those memorable things from my education that, you know, you think that you have heard the thing. And so it sounds like there's a lot more to it. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. My last pick this week, we're fasting we're fasting forward, we're going fast forward, fast forwarding. That's what we're doing is we are fast forwarding uh to November 19th. It's Wake Siren, Ovid Resung by Nina McLaughlin. Um she's a wonderful writer who had a memoir out a few years ago called Hammerhead about um changing her career from being a journalist to becoming a carpenter. Um, a really wonderful book that I have loved for a long time. And this is such a change of direction for her, but um really fascinating. She has taken the stories from Ovid's Metamorphoses, which present a lot of the very common and popular stories um, from classical mythology. And then she has turned them to other perspectives. She's telling these stories from the perspectives of the women uh, in them. And if you are familiar at all with classical mythology, lots of bonkers and not great things happen to female characters, like a god comes down and rapes a woman so that they can have a child who then becomes a demigod. Well, Nina McLaughlin is telling the story from the woman's point of view. Um, those kinds of things. It's. Uh, Really fascinating. It's been probably 20 years since I read The Metamorphoses, and I don't remember a lot of it. So I'm also Googling a lot of like, what are these mythologies? But you don't have to be deeply familiar with the classical stories to find a lot of value here. It's such a fantastic concept. It's really, really beautifully executed as well. And also just I think very delightful when a writer who's done one thing like write a memoir about transitioning from being a journalist to being a carpenter does something um, unexpected for what you thought you had in mind for them. Um, So really cool to see that this is another thing that Nina McLaughlin has in her bag of tricks. And it's got me wondering what else she might be planning for us. Um, I'm not all the way done with it yet. I've been sort of dipping in and out. Um, It's really, really wonderful. So especially if you're into mythology, and you like, um, I think twists on fairy tales would also be, you would be a good reader for this. But telling these stories that we've all absorbed in one way or another, just from, you know, the ways that they're referred to in popular culture and in other literature, and flipping them to be from the perspective of different characters, and really hanging a lantern on that those stories are largely about male characters and male- heroes and let's look at the female characters and what life would have been like for them inside these stories i'm just an awesome idea she's done it beautifully i can't recommend it enough it's wake siren by nina mclaughlin
1: all right so those are our new picks what are you gonna read next
2: well, the first time we recorded this show, I was going to read Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, his new novel. And I did read it. I powered <gasps> through it in like one sitting over the yes! weekend. It's so good. I picked it up on Saturday afternoon. and I was like, oh, I'll just start with this. And it was one of those moments where like the next thing I knew, I looked up and I was 150 pages in. Yay! Um, it's awesome. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone because I managed to go into it not knowing anything about it. So all of it was just surprising and great. Um, So now I'm going to read How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. That's nice. been one of the big books of the year, one of the most anticipated titles. And I'm starting to be in that phase, as I said, of end of the year, catching up on the stuff I wanted to read this year that I didn't get to yet. And that is at the top of the list. What about you?
1: Well, when we recorded this last, I was going to read. Uh, Kingdom Tide by Rye Curtis, which I still plan on reading, uh, but I did pick up Acid for the Children, the flea memoir, last night. And oh, yeah. Reading that. I'm not a big Chili Peppers fan. However, this book is getting amazing reviews. It has an introduction from Patti Smith, and I was like, I want to read this. So I started reading it last night, and it's really, really good. Um, so I'm going to go back and forth between those two. But I am super excited about Kingdom Tide as well. Um, I was at Gibson's Books last week and the owner was telling me um it was one of his favorite books coming out next year and he said it was like charles portis and then he said a bunch of other stuff but i stopped listening because (laughs) charles portis i just was like drooling that's all you need to know (laughs) yeah i break for a charles portis recommendation so um that was all i needed yeah so that that's it
2: all right well we made
1: it we did i bear i feel like i i
2: Yeah. So, those are new books. Books coming out soon, books that we've loved. And if you have anything to tell us, you can do that at all the books at bookriot.com. Or we are mostly hanging out on Instagram these days. I am Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Liberty is friends and comes alive on Instagram. You'll see lots of good cat pictures and tons of book content. <laughs> and if you like the show, if you would rate or review it on Apple podcasts, shout us out on social media or tell a friend, we would certainly appreciate that.
1: Shout at us on the streets.
2: You know, it's fine. <laughs> sure. Apparently that's a thing that <laughs> happens now. <laughs>
1: it's so amazing. Um, and as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, I'm I'm done. Like, my brain has stopped moving, and that's it for me today. So uh, we don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash allthebooks, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter.
2: In and In the meantime,
1: meantime happy, happy reading. reading. <laughs>